This is Healthcare Matters on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Healthcare Matters is a program that delves into healthcare policy and issues. The hosts are not medical clinicians and they're not able to offer advice about medical conditions or diseases. You're always encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford Healthcare, hosted by Rebecca Stewart and Elliot Joseph. We're healthy, Welcome to Healthcare Matters. This is Elliot Joseph. I am here this morning with my co-host, Rebecca Stewart. And Rebecca and I were reflecting recently that we uh, began the show a number of years ago now, and our goal was to help start a conversation and lead the way to an improved healthcare delivery system. And over the last decade, as uh, we've helped transform healthcare delivery right here in Connecticut, We've also been able through the show to examine what others are doing here and across the country. We have been fortunate to have some of the best minds talk with us about what works, what doesn't work, and how do we bridge the gap. And all along, our goal has been to broaden this conversation by inviting you, our listeners, to weigh in. And this morning, we're going to return to that theme with our special guests who host a program, a podcast called Fixing Healthcare. One of our guests has written a book and speaks about this all across the country. And they have called together several ideas from many of the experts we have profiled here on the show. And we want to delve into the ideas. And remember this morning, we do want to hear from you. We want to know what you, our listeners, think. But first, this morning, we are going to introduce our guests. Yes, I feel like this morning we have guests from a parallel universe. Yes. Uh, they're both radio show hosts at this point in their lives. Uh, our first guest is Dr. Robert Pearl. Dr. Pearl is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group. He was responsible for the nationally recognized medical care of 4 million Kaiser Permanente members on both the West Coast and the East Coast. Dr. Pearl is an advocate for the power of integrated, prepaid, technologically advanced, and physician-led healthcare delivery. He's written books on the topic and is very passionate about transforming care for the better. As well, we have Jeremy Core. Jeremy is one of the hosts of Fixing Healthcare and has been eager to shine the spotlight on the doctors and the healthcare leaders who are demonstrating to be most capable of transforming American medicine. And both Jeremy and Robert are actually a perfect fit for today's conversation. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome Good to morning, Elliot and Rebecca. Good morning. We're glad you're here with us this morning. And actually, we're going to start first with you this morning, Dr. Robert Pearl. You just wrote a book called Mistreated, a bestseller. And I love the way you talk about this formula to fix healthcare. And you wanted to start delving into these sort of four pillars. So give us a little background, why you're passionate about this, and then some of your recipe. The American healthcare system is broken. What we know is that we spend 50% more than any other country. We know that hundreds of thousands of people die every year from preventable medical errors, as my father did, which is part of my passion. And we know we can do a lot better. As an example, we know that when uh, physicians and nurses work together as one, when their care is integrated, patients get better outcomes because the care is collaborative and cooperative. What we know is that when Healthcare systems are paid increasingly for value, not just volume. They focus on prevention. They get things right the first time. What we know is that when technology is available, when the electronic healthcare 
record information is there at every point of contact for a patient. Physicians and nurses can do the right thing sooner. And we know that leadership is necessary, mistreated while we think we're getting good health care, while we're usually wrong, a Washington Post bestseller, has engaged people around us, and I'm hoping that your listeners will have thoughts on the matter as well. I do want to remind our listeners, if you want to tell us what you think, and we want to hear from you this morning, that is 860-522-9842, 860-522-9842. You know, as you're laying out these thoughts, these ideas, and I'm very eager to hear Elliot's thoughts on this, as you're laying it out, it really is an argument that says, this is why you have to systematize your health care. This is why these little islands of care don't work. What are your thoughts when you hear those pillars? Yeah, um... So- yeah, go, go ahead, Robert. Oh, I thought the question was to me. I'm sorry. So, so when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we were able to uh, control blood pressure, as an example, 90% of the time across the United States is 55% of the time. That difference is a 40% lower stroke rate. And the reason was this coordination of care, having information available at every point. And as you point out, Rebecca, Elliot and his organization have accomplished many of the same things. So let me turn it back to Elliot to get his thoughts on the matter. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, uh, Robert, with your four pillars. I think they are essential. I also come at this from exactly the same point of view, and there's way more data than we need to demonstrate the brokenness of the delivery system. The question I think we face as a country and uh, in the work that you've done and continue to do and certainly the work that we do at Hartford HealthCare is how do you accelerate this change? There are so many barriers that get in the way. We, uh, we had um, Governor Mike Levitt on the show very recently. I'm sure you know Mike, and he's got a very strong uh, perspective about this transformation as well. One of the things that um, has helped me in uh, having a little more uh, um, patience with uh, um, this transformation, although I'm generally not a patient person, <laughs> is Mike's uh, tenant that we're on a 40-year journey to really transform delivery in this country. Uh, I tend to agree with that. What, what's your perspective about uh, the horizon and some of the significant barriers that stand in our way? I don't think we have 40 years because I think that people increasingly simply can't afford the cost of care, we know that health care is the number one reason people go bankrupt. We know that 40% of Americans can't pay their out-of-pocket expectations should they get very, very sick. Jeremy and I actually will be putting on air this Tuesday the podcast interview we did with a gentleman named Dr. Debbie Shetty, who runs hospitals not just in India, but the Cayman Islands, one hour from Miami with Mother Teresa's physician. And he does care at half the price of the United States with results that are even better. I think we have disruptive forces. The Amazon Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan Chase, that was big in the news, is an opportunity. I think change is going to actually happen, Elliot, over the next 10 to 20 years. 40 years is way too long. I hope you are correct, and certainly that would make me feel better about all the great work that we're all doing around this country to try to advance that cause. I'll give you an example of um, something that we've done at uh, Hartford HealthCare that just has tremendous value uh, in in terms of uh, better patient care, greater integrated care, 
uh, and better outcomes. And, and it sounds so simple when you say it out loud, but because we're the state's largest uh, provider of behavioral health, uh, and of course we know that so many comorbidities are, are based on behavioral health challenges that patients uh, face, uh, we, we co-located behavioral health specialists, so, social workers, um, in, primarily, uh, into, right into primary care offices. And the ability to, to real-time integrate primary care and behavioral health uh, so that, in fact, the patient leaves uh, the office after having consulted with both physicians and creating an integrated care plan leaving has had such a powerful impact that said, the progress is slow. Right. Um, there, the the insurance companies don't pay for this uh, uh, this kind of service. Um, the the system is still uh, too fragmented. So uh, I just struggle with how do we accelerate things. And the other piece I, I, to I, take a, a look at, if you take one step back, the other piece that I thought was so interesting when we did have Governor Levitt on this program was he said, do not despair. It's a 40-year transformation, but guess what, folks? We're 25 years in. And I thought that that was important perspective because I thought the same way that you did, Robert, thinking, oh, Lord, we don't have 40 years. We got to do this now. And I do think that gave a different perspective. And all of these things, it's, it's bringing them together. The behavioral health piece is a tremendous piece because so many folks are healthier if their mental health is in check. Elliot, let me really applaud you. What you're doing in embedding mental health inside primary care is cutting edge ahead of the time. What we know is that we still don't have the conversations that we need about mental health issues. You know, one of the guests in our podcast made this statement, Everyone has someone in their family who has a uh, mental health type issue. We just need to all admit it. I think that's true. You know, the examples you're giving are just terrific about the four pillars. Care is integrated. You have the mental health and the physical health in the same place. I know that all of your physicians, whether they're in the offices or in the hospitals or in the urgent care centers, share a common electronic health record so that data is available, and moving ahead to simply four volumes. What we know is that mental health and physical health are very much related, that mental health issues cause physical health issues, physical health issues cause mental health issues, and getting ahead of that in some fashion is definitely important. And without your leadership and that of the other people in your organization, this could never have happened. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And, and uh, the way we've tried to drive this at, at our organization at Hartford Healthcare is we've made a, a promise to those we serve, and we call it our five ones. And I think these five ones, Robert, speak directly to all four of the pillars. And those five ones is that we are aspiring to provide one registration for patients no matter where they show up. We now have 300 doors to access care across Hartford HealthCare. So one registration, one standard medical record, two, one standard of excellence. So reducing the unnecessary variation in care process and the unnecessary variation 
treatment care outcome as well as the patient experience, one standard of excellence. And the fourth one, maybe the most difficult of all, is to have one financial statement or one bill ultimately for patients uh, to really help them figure out uh, the financial implications of, of uh, all, all of their healthcare services. And then lastly, one relationship that we are really most trusted for personalized, coordinated care for those in our communities that we serve. And those five ones drive our ambition to uh, really focus on these four pillars that you've laid out. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a journey, but we're making great progress. And Robert, I'm curious your perspective. You know, there is a lot of pushback nationally um, that people are afraid of the bigness of a system. And yet, everything you lay out in those pillars, you're really dependent on that scale, on that largeness. How do you respond to that? If you look at the last century, the 20th century, and you look at medical practice, what you see is that the diseases that we were taking care of are different than today. In the past, you had an acute illness. Maybe it was pneumonia, maybe it was appendicitis. It could be taken care of by one individual. That person gave you antibiotics, did a procedure, and that was the care you provided. It worked very well. That's the system that we have today where physicians are scattered across the, hospital, uh, the community, hospitals are all separate from each other. Uh, the most common way doctors communicate with each other is by the facts. I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Right. And when I tell my students that physicians communicate by, uh, by facts is a preferred way, they look at me and they say, what's a fax? Uh-huh. They don't understand that we don't have this today. What we know is that the majority of Americans have at least chronic diseases, and they can't be managed by a single individual. The reason, as I said, in Kaiser Permanente, when I was CEO, we had a 90% control of hypertension. It didn't happen just in primary care. It happened at every point of contact, and that's what's required. By definition, a chronic disease is with you every single day of your life, and you need to have this kind of coordination. We might yearn for the old days, but they're gone, and they're gone not because of some edict coming from the government or from some other source. It's gone because today it does not work to give people the outcomes they required. And if you look across this country, what do we see? For the first time in history, life expectancy in the United States is dropping. Unimaginable, considering how much we spend. We can do better. I wrote mistreated for the patients and all of us, and any of your listeners who have a question about worrying about the size of the system or the control, I encourage them to read the book and get, and get deeper understanding about what's possible. And by the way, all the profits from it go to Doctors Without Borders. I don't earn any money from the sale yeah. of the book. That's fabulous. And uh, I'm going to have to order a few and distribute them here and around Connecticut. I have a few people on my list who I'd, I'd like to personally deliver it to. I've, I've been calling our industry America's largest cottage industry for, uh, for my entire career. Um, and finally, what we're doing is creating a more organized, more integrated, more scalable, more technologically driven capability as we reconfigure the delivery system. And I will tell you, one of my um, things that I can go off on, and I'll try not to do it this morning, <laughs> is uh, the unbelievably ridiculous regulatory environment, particularly here in Connecticut, I'll speak to directly, uh, hopefully some of you are listening, um, that make it so, so difficult 
to to push this transformation forward. But it's it's happening. And to do the right thing for our patients. I do want to remind our listeners this morning, we want to know your thoughts. What do you think about all of this? That is 860-522-WTIC, 860-522-9842. So I also, at this point, you set forth some questions to your listeners and your guests. And I love the way you set it up. You said, all right, folks, imagine you've been chosen as a leader of American healthcare. You are to devise a plan to fix a $3.5 trillion American healthcare industry. And as you were saying, Robert, lagging global counterparts, you want to make sure that things are improving. What do you do? Easy, right? Not so much. So you've had a lot of folks on your program, similar guests that we've had on this radio show, and we really do want to hear some of those thoughts. Do you want to go back to like to some of those first guests that you have had, your sort of first idea? So the first guest we had was a physician who goes by the nickname Z-Dog. He has a, he's very funny. He does rapping about serious topics and is actually driving a tremendous amount of change. And his focus is on primary care, which is that if you don't have a physician with whom you have a relationship, who can manage your problems across time, who can prevent them before they happen, you're going to end up suffering more and you're going to end up with poor health care. And in the United States today, we've evolved to where the specialist is at the top and the primary care increasingly is diminished. We spent 4% of our total dollars on primary care. And I encourage any of your listeners and all of your listeners who might not have a primary care physician to find one and establish a long-term bond with him or her, particularly one who has access to information technology systems that allow you to communicate without necessarily getting in your car and driving large distances to get the care you need. That's that's an amazing perspective and point with our electronic health record. Now, we did have Z-Dog MD on the show not too long ago, and I want everyone to take a listen to what he said, if our producers could play that clip for us. We're spending 4%. This is Vegas. Let's double down on primary care or triple down. And let's really spend properly on prevention, and then let's change everything. And the result of that was this, Turntable Health, the clinic we built in the heart of downtown Las Vegas. This is our team. And the way it works is this. We said, okay, my dad pointed out clearly that the U.S. healthcare system, which is fee-for-service based, pays you to do things to people instead of for people. Well, hey, what if we make it a membership model, like a gym? where for a flat fee, you get all you can treat access to the buffet. That was Z-Dog MD not too long ago talking about his perspective. And Elliot, I'm curious when you take a look at that, he, you had a, another perspective, this membership. You were saying this is this capitated model. Yes, it is. It's, it's part of uh, what I'm sure Dr. Pearl and his colleagues you know, consider about changing the payment system from fee-for-service to value-based. And we're seeing... incremental change around the country in certain markets in in that regard. This particular issue, though, about a focus on primary care, I couldn't agree with it more. I think it's absolutely essentially important. Um, You know, what what I'm seeing, though, is that it's getting worse, not better. And it's getting worse, I think, for two reasons. 
Um, one is what I would call follow the money. You know, we have we have seen uh, medical schools focus more on primary care and more students engaging and enrolling in primary care. At least these are the numbers that, that I have access to. Uh, Dr. Pearl, your, your numbers may look different. And what we find uh, over uh, the time that they're in medical school, they're socialized into the mainstream delivery system, hospitals and outpatient centers, et cetera, and more of them turn back uh, to specialty uh, training and leave their orientation around primary care. Uh, and it's got a lot to do with the way the current system works and uh, the way the money, money flows through the system. The other tremendous um, uh, energy is around technology and the increasing s- and discovery, biotech discoveries, the increasing subspecialization of healthcare can lead us, if we let it, take off on its own to increase fragmentation uh, and and uh, um, you know the the body of information uh, that that a primary care physician needs access to given all of this development uh, it, it's an overwhelming challenge I'm interested dr. Pearl uh, in um, your perspective well you're hitting on quite a number of important issues the first one is that we undervalue prevention because when you prevent a disease, the person never knows that they would have gotten it, and you don't have all the thank yous, you don't have all the families telling you how good you are. If you take care right. of a patient with advanced colon cancer, let's say, then and you manage to save their life, then you're the hero. Yes. If you prevent 10 cases of colon cancer Great point. by screening, and I don't mean colonoscopy, I mean there's a test you can do called the FIT test, you do for the privacy of bathroom once a year, five minutes, painless, if we did that for everyone, we could save tens of thousands and maybe 100,000 lives a year. So I agree completely there, and I agree with technology. We are enamored by the things that shine, and we don't focus on the things that are very straightforward that are here now. You know, you'd never fly on an airplane that didn't allow you to make your reservations online, and yet how many people can sign up with their physician for a visit? From, the com- from their computer at home. Um, the opportunity is to people Skype with individuals around the world, family members around the world, and yet if you want to have a, uh, something looked at by a doctor, no, they can't always solve it using virtual care. You can't do that. You miss a half day of work. You drive to the office. You often have to wait a couple of days for appointment. We have things available now that would link in with the coordination of care that would link in with primary care, that would allow people seeing a physician in the primary care office to get specialty uh, expertise at that moment to speed up the care, to facilitate the care, to lower the care. We just don't do it. As you said, Elliot, it's a cottage industry. It's like the 19th century England that's fragmented, paid on a, pay, on a piecemeal basis that we call fee-for-service, and has technology left over from the pre-industrial age. Right. Uh, I agree completely. You know, and, and you talk about the hero model in, in the specialty arena, saving people's lives. It, and I'm showing my age here. The hero model of primary care doctor when I was growing up and was Marcus Welby. You know, there, there was your hero. And uh, we've learned that there are very few Marcus Welbys still around roaming the planet. And uh, very, very, very few people are interested in practicing medicine uh, that way for a whole variety of reasons. And again, it's why we at Hartford HealthCare and many of our colleagues around the country have been aggregating primary care physicians together into large 
medical groups so that we can afford to make the investments in new technologies to help them uh, have access to the kind of care management uh, and preventive care uh, that we can disperse across a much larger uh, set of communities. It, it, it's happening. It's, uh, it's just slow. It is slow as we're in that 40-year transition. We are going to take a quick break. You have been listening to Healthcare Matters. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Back to our show, Healthcare Matters. This is Elliot Joseph, and if you're just joining us, we are once again talking about transforming healthcare and making meaningful change that translates to our patients ultimately and creates consumers in the healthcare industry. We've been fortunate over the last few years on our show, uh, we've been able to bring in some of the best minds to talk to us about what's working. Uh, what isn't moving as quickly as we'd like to see, and what can we learn from those experiments, and how do we bridge the gap? Through it all, we have asked our listeners to be with us, to weigh in, create a conversation. We want to encourage you to call in this morning and talk with us about these interesting and provocative thoughts uh, that we are talking through this morning. Our guests are Dr. Robert Pearl. Dr. Pearl is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group. He was responsible for a nationally recognized medical care system for 4 million Kaiser Permanente members on both the West and the East Coast. And also with us is Jeremy Kaur. Jeremy is one of the co-hosts with Dr. Pearl of their show called Fixing Healthcare. And he's been eager to shine a spotlight on the doctors and the healthcare leaders most capable of transforming American medicine. So, welcome back. Welcome back. And Jeremy, you've been a little quiet, so I just want to get some of your thoughts this morning as you're hearing this conversation. Yeah, and I would say, you know, just in full transparency, Dr. Pearl's the expert on the show, kind of where I come in is I tend to be the voice of the patient and the, you know, the voice of the consumer and try to help make sure that their concerns are addressed. Um, that being said, I think that a lot of the a lot of the things that you're talking about are very fascinating to me. But one of the questions I have for Elliot, you know, from that voice of the patient is, what are some of the things you're doing, your organization is doing to help? What's the word I'm looking for? Help keep the, the the what are you? What are some of the ways you are forwarding the patient experience, and what are some of the things you're moving towards in that arena in the next couple of years that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I appreciate that question. Uh, we really are doing a number of really breakthrough um, activities. I'll just highlight a couple of them. One is we've created something we call the Care Logistics Center. Now, a patient or a consumer would not directly um, interface, for the most part, with this center, uh, but we are using a whole series of predictive analytics and, and new data capabilities to manage patient flow across the entirety of our enterprise. Right now, it's being applied on the inpatient side. An example of a benefit uh, to a patient. Today, um, if you're being transported by ambulance or um, you are, or by helicopter, God forbid, uh, and you show up in one of our emergency rooms, either, you know, through one of those vehicles or, or another manner, and, and you need intensive care, uh, today, you would back up in that specific hospital's emergency room until an intensive care bed became available. 
what we've created is the capability to actually use all of our inpatient, particularly our intensive care capacity, with one phone call to our care logistics center to determine where a bed is available for a patient who is presenting themselves for care right now and move that patient immediately to where our capacity exists rather than just queuing up in the emergency room they happen to show up in or, the or are headed to. And the other, you know, to tag on to what Elliot is saying, in the perfect world, it is invisible to the patient, and yet they benefit. We've called it a sort of air traffic control right. for patients. Now, the exciting thing on the consumerism side is today it's just being used because it's early stage on the inpatient side. Where this is moving is the ambulatory and outpatient care. So if you want an, if you need an MRI exam, for example, as an outpatient, again, today's reality is as a consumer, you show up wherever you've been assigned to go get your MRI and you wait. And they may not have an appointment for weeks. It, it could be backed up for a few hours. And in the near term future, our care logistics center will help patients get to the place where there's immediate access for the services they need. It's really the first time that we're able to go beyond the individual silos of the delivery system and really apply it to the marketplace uh, in a a consumer-facing way. So Chris has been waiting patiently. Chris, you are from West Hartford. You are on Healthcare Matters. Hi, Rebecca. Uh, Thank you for for having me on. Uh, Yeah, I just, uh, I heard talking the doctors talking about earlier about the uh, importance of primary care as well as, well as mental health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one thing that they really need to start teaching in medical school and start uh, emphasizing is the importance of nutrition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, a lot of diabetes, we have a diabetes ep- epidemic in this country. You just have to look, go anywhere, go to, a, go to a mall and you can see it. Uh, and, and one thing, there are certain changes in our diet that can, uh, in our nutrition, that can really change that. One is to go get away from uh, commercial uh, grain-fed beef and go back to grass-fed beef, which, which we had in the, um, throughout the most of the 20th century, all the way up to about the 50s, early 60s, before they started switching to grain-fed beef and made sicker cows, and you ended up having bad, getting, getting bad cholesterol and problems like that. The, the other thing is the overconsumption of uh, uh, sodas with sure. high-fructose corn syrup, things like that. Uh, you know yeah. what, Chris, that's actually a great perspective. Thanks for calling in. There's a lot of work going on with health systems all across the country as you're talking about food deserts and really making sure that from that community perspective because and so many even more prescriptions being written being thought of food as medicine so i think everything you're talking about is really important in the entire and the whole body sort of the whole body of medicine dr pearl i'd love your thoughts to that so when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we at, I, first I agree completely with what Chris is saying, but what we did is we brought uh, uh, farmers um, into our medical centers and we had opportunities for the entire community to come and buy freshly grown uh, food without all the pesticides and the other problems that exist. Medicine has undervalued and underestimated the impact of diet on health for the reasons that Chris talks about. But remember how much the world has changed. All the processed foods that we have, all the fast foods are relatively new. 
And the thing I like that you said earlier about uh, the idea of the 40-year plan is if you back up 40 years, the world at that time was different. One-third of people in the United States today by 2030 will have diabetes, and the reason is nutrition and obesity. The opportunity to focus on that as the means of raising quality, extending life, and lowering cost is tremendous, and we don't do enough of that. Right, right. One, one of the back to the primary care. You need to have the time to invest the time and the tools to accomplish it. One of the great things about Connecticut, I learned this this summer, um, we hosted the uh, Farm Aid concert, the, the Willie Nelson, et cetera, um, extravaganza. And I learned the fact there that Connecticut actually is the, I think it's at the highest increase in land being used for uh, small private farms really? uh, over the last number of years. So there's something good happening there. Now that's contrasted with the fact that cities like Hartford, right. the capital city, uh, you can't find a supermarket uh, because of the demographics of the, the population there. So um, there's just a tremendous amount of effort that has to has to happen to to address this issue to move that forward now i want to go back to one of your other guests on your podcast fixing healthcare who's also a guest that we have had on this program who people he may sound quite familiar to people because he was the head of geisinger for some time and has since as Elliot was talking about earlier gone to the other side and we're eager to see what happens with the new position at google we are talking about david feinberg and this is a clip from episode 25 of our program let's take a listen to david feinberg so I, I had an opportunity to be 25 years in California, the last eight or nine, all of it at UCLA, the last eight or nine, uh, running our health system. And I, I kind of think, and I don't think this is particular to a UCLA kind of place, but it was as if our mission statement, our purpose was, you're lucky you get to see us. Wait in line. We're really smart. We're the third best hospital in the United States. It's a privilege for you to be cared for us. And we just decided to flip that on its head, to just change it to what an honor it is to take care of you. We went from 38th percentile to 99th percentile on a Prescani survey that said, would you refer this hospital to a friend? We became one of the best hospitals in the United States on, would you refer us to a friend? And I said to my team, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on the radio, but that, that makes us the cream of the crap. I thought to be the best in healthcare doesn't mean we're the best. Actually, you'd only have to get 85 out of 100 people to give you that score to be the best in healthcare. I said, that makes us a little better than the DMV. Now, how do we really become the best? How do we become as customer understanding, as innovative as Apple and Amazon and everybody else, Ritz-Carlton that takes care of you? Because, hey, when you're coming to us, it's actually more important than getting an iPhone or going on vacation. It's something's really bad. We really, really have to deliver. Yeah, um, we loved what what David said, and actually, uh, uh, that was uh, in part some of the motivation for how we th began to think differently about urgent care in this community. Um, and Robert, I'd be interested in your perspective, but let me share our story around urgent care because we felt the same way. We the comparison. Uh, inside the healthcare industry was insufficient for us. So we found a partner uh, who was innovating in urgent care and actually were people who had very little to no healthcare experience. They came out of the retail industry and they came out of the technology industry. And over the last probably 14 months, we've, uh, in partnership with this group, 
Go Health is uh, the urgent care uh, name. We have now 20 sites up and running. And one of the things we liked about their model was the intensive use of technology for access, for registration. We actually uh, installed our, our medical record uh, and our providers into this model. So when you show up there, those providers have access to your entire history, no matter where we have seen you. Back to those five ones again, this is actually happening today. We're, we actually have over 200,000 visits in these care centers uh, just in the last year. It's, it's really seen great growth. And we measure our, our patients and consumers' satisfaction in a way that's different than, as David uh, talked about, Prescani. They use a net promoter score, which really is not a healthcare uh, metric. It, it, it's more of a consumer metric. And today, our net promoter scores are hovering between 83 and 85, which compared to any other industry and any other consumer-facing uh, type of product or service uh, is really extraordinary. And this is the beginning of that revolution. I'm excited about it. Uh, Dr. Pearl, what, what's your point of view? So a couple of thoughts, Elliot. First of all, I again, want to really applaud what you've done in the urgent care centers because we use that word urgent care center as though all of them are the same. Yes. The ones that you have where information is available for the totality of the visits changes that completely because now the physician can not only take care of the problem that brought you there, but understand all the other aspects of your care that need to be factored in and need to be addressed and can do all of that at once. So it's exactly the way to go. But your point uh, from David's clip that struck me, as I mentioned earlier on our, on our Fixing Healthcare podcast next week, Debbie Shetty, who was Mother Teresa's physician, who's a heart surgeon who runs programs both in India and the Cayman Islands, will be there. He's going to point out that one in 200 people, one in 200 people who are admitted to a hospital in the United States today, not your hospitals, across the whole United States, die from a medical error. Yep. What we know is that it's now the third leading cause of death, medical error. What we know is that, as an example, physicians don't always wash their hands at hospital-acquired infections, particularly from an organism called C. difficile, mm -hmm. is growing, and patients are suffering as a consequence. I think measuring performance against the current outcomes where 200,000 people die a year from medical error is not the right standard. We need to take that down to zero. Right. I agree completely. I'll, I'll just share a few things that we've been uh, um, pursuing over the last few years because we agree with you completely on this issue. And some of it's a little counterintuitive, but uh, not so much the hand-washing thing. Hand-washing has been one of our nine top metrics now for about three or four years. And we've made great progress, uh, but it is still uh, a very difficult thing uh, to keep it a, a, at the highest level possible. And we're trying to embed it in our culture. And two other things that we've devoted ourselves to, to based on this notion of the danger of being in a hospital and the risk of acquiring an infection is we've now built uh, the, the state's largest home care company. Uh, we're all over the state. We have about $130 million in revenue, hundreds of thousands of, of, of touches of, of patients in their homes, and really trying to manage the length of stay uh, down. Mm 
inside our hospitals to get people into ambulatory and home care settings sooner rather than later. And there's a lot of pressure across the whole industry around reducing that length of stay for all sorts of reasons. And of course, we fight the perception that we're pushing people out of the hospitals too early and uh, they're not ready. And that's why we've been building all this capability to ensure that, and we don't even use the word discharge in our hospitals anymore. We call that a transition so that, um, that that quality of care and that integration of care across that divide of leaving the hospital uh, is as good as it could possibly be. And I think your point about the perception that you're pushing somebody out, reminding folks, and you've been very open about saying Look, a hospital isn't necessarily, we want you to be home. You're safer at home, right. and that's where we want you to get better sooner, and that's sort of the reason behind it. And we probably do need to do a better job. On the hand-washing front, that's another education of the public piece, reminding folks to empower them to ask. Yes. Ask that question if you notice it, because our reality is that there isn't one person in a hospital, in a medical office, who thinks, oh, gee, I'd love to pass along some awful illness they're, you know they're either rushed they're busy it's not intentional and I think it's really important to remind folks ask folks if you're noticing it say can you wash your hands for me can you wash that off and that's your right that's something that you should be asking as a patient right. and let's go back to the home for a second I mean we're what we're seeing and again Dr. Prell would be very interested in your perspective and Dr. Feinberg's move to Google and what Amazon and others are doing uh, with Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan. Um, we see the technology revolution occurring uh, most profoundly in the home setting with, <laughs> with the ability to remotely monitor patient vitals, uh, compliance with medications being taken, and ultimately the application of artificial intelligence in the home. Um, and you know, most of us now live with Alexa, and uh, we certainly see that kind of capability bringing ultimately great advantage mm -hmm. to caring for people at home. Your perspective? I'm in complete agreement that we need a technology revolution. I may not be quite as optimistic as you are that it's coming for reasons that I'll explain in a second. But the first thing I'll say is that the continuity of care is essential. And this is where video to me is so powerful. Yes. That opportunity to link up the patient who has just left the hospital. Remember, that individual has been in a 24-hour observation by nurses almost continuous care by doctors and by other individuals, and now they're at home. But we can bridge that, as you're saying, monitors can be included as well, answering questions, seeing how the person is doing, linking them in. To me, this is an opportunity that can happen with a combination of the technology, the integration your organization is doing, and this movement you described of moving from fee for service to pay for value. My biggest concern or my biggest uh, unhappiness is that we have an opportunity, I believe, today, if one of the companies, hopefully one of the Connecticut companies, would be having the courage to create the following type of product. It could be the Siri on your um, computer, on, on your iPhone, or it can be Alexa, it can be anyone you want it to be, that that application is now going to be able to take data on everything you're doing, your blood sugar readings if you have diabetes, uh, measurements of your blood pressure if you're doing home blood pressure monitoring, 
uh, ongoing measurements of your temperature and put that into an application that's been created by the most expert physicians, ultimately over time, potentially through artificial intelligence as well, and give you what patients want to know. Am I okay or should I get care? Am I okay because I may have a problem today, but it's a little bit better than yesterday. When all the pieces are together, there's nothing to be worried about, as opposed to I should call the doctor right now and get the appropriate care. They're afraid to do it because any application like that has a probabilistic. There's always going to be an error. Physicians aren't always accurate, but that opportunity to move care from being episodic, I see my physician every three months or four months or six months, to continuous, to me, opens a tremendous pathway. It helps patients avoid unnecessary care, and yet brings them in the minute it's required. I keep urging both my book, Mistreated, on our podcast, Fixing um, American Healthcare, to have a company step forward, whether it's Google, whether it's Apple, any of the big companies, to create this product and put it on the phones that all of us carry with us to improve care. That opportunity is here today. I'm just encouraging a company to have the yep. courage to do so. Yep, I, I agree with you. And I'm going to cite two other technologies that are very active today that I think are essentially uh, foundational to what you're describing uh, as a, a near-term ambition. Uh, one is the term I don't think we've used this morning, actually, is telehealth, sure. uh, which I think is going to have more impact on changing access and, and changing coordination integration than anything else that's occurred up till now. And again, interested in your point of view. And as well, through our electronic health record, uh, a consumerism uh, aspect, which we call the patient portal, and which, you know, which encourages patients to not wait uh, every three months or four months or every six months to talk with their physician and see their provider, but to actively um, converse uh, through that portal uh, with questions, uh, setting up appointments, uh, reconciling medications, and even, even billing questions um, over the Internet through that patient portal, privately secured, um, I think the combination of that kind of capability and telehealth capability are going to go a long way to describing what, what this aspiration is. And Jeremy, I'm curious, that patient perspective, what are your thoughts there from the patient's point of view? Well, I, I think in terms of the, the patient portal piece and in terms of telehealth, one of the interesting things we had, uh, one of the guests on our show, I think it was actually Feinberg, say was in terms of telehealth, it shouldn't even be called telehealth. It should be just called health because mm-hmm. we're so far behind. I mean, you don't tolerate those types of things from your bank. You don't tolerate those right. types of things from your retail experience. But telehealth should just be so common that it should just be called health. Um, and even in terms of the patient portal, I think that's definitely the direction we need to move in. And with the EHR, what, one of the things we were talking to Debbie Shetty about was just their EHR in India, which is you know, an industrializing nation right now, theirs is heads and tails above pretty much anything we have here in the United States, mm-hmm. which is in a lot of the, even with their ability to monitor diabetics with a lot of the things Dr. Pearl was talking about, in some ways, these hospitals in India are very, very far ahead of us. That's and I think amazing. that's one of the things that's absolutely fascinating to think yes. about as well. This has been quite a conversation throughout our our last hour. I think we made tremendous, I just, I love the ideas, I love the energy. Elliot, what are your thoughts? Well, I would turn it back to Dr. Pearl uh, as someone who's given a lot of thought to this and has worked in one of the leading delivery systems in America. Uh, 
sum up your your hopes and ambitions and what what's what's next for us well i wrote this treatise and i often call it for the patients in all of us because that's who we are yeah. and i can encourage you completely elliot that the opportunity to put the patient at the front Putting the patient, yes, absolutely. Putting the patient first. We appreciate your time. Thank you to our guests. This is Healthcare Matters. This has been Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford Healthcare. Tune in next month as we continue to discuss the status of healthcare, determine what works and what doesn't, and work to bridge the gap. Healthcare Matters on WTIC. News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. We're